Like, this person is the guilty one. And then the main character has to rush and, and try to find, you know, the guilty person or try to confront them or whatever. In a lot of ways, the Davidic covenant is sort of like the last chapter before getting to the climactic chapter of the book. The Davidic covenant is that last clue. It's that last piece that kind of falls into place with the rest of the covenants that kind of really narrows the focus and, and, and reveals what is this, this promised seed of Eve and this promised descendant of Abraham and what is God doing with this nation of Israel. With the Davidic covenant, it kind of brings all those pieces together and all of a sudden we have a lot of, a lot of clarity. And we, we kind of know more of what to expect. Actually, it kind of brings it together. So how many of you guys have ever been to the optometrist before? Right? I, I, some of you aren't wearing glasses, so I'm a little suspicious. But when you go to the optometrist, what do they do? Right? They, they sit you down in the seat, and you know how they always do that thing where they're like, is it A or is it B? A, B. And you're kind of like, they look the same. <laughs> right? And then they're like, well, well, how about B or C? And then you're kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 like uh, C. C is more clear. Okay, how about C or D? Oh, man, D is way clearer, right? And then eventually they get to this point where it's like, okay, what about this or this? And you're like, wow, I can actually see perfectly now, like with that last lens. Well, in a lot of ways, the Davidic covenant is kind of like you're at the optometrist and all of a sudden the last set of lenses come into place, right? You, you were in this fog, but now there's clarity on what exactly God is doing with the unfolding of the covenants. So God started something, right, in, in the garden, in the aftermath of the fall, God started something, a promise with Eve, and he's been bringing things to fruition, and now with the Davidic covenant, it's almost like the last lens falls into place, and there's, there's this clarity about what's going on, about how exactly God is going to bring about redemption, all right? So kind of just to review, right, because one of the reasons why we chose to do the Covenant series as a church, and one of the reasons why I think it's so helpful, is that it helps us to understand the narrative of Scripture as a whole, right? And so in the beginning of the story, right, there, after the fall, in the aftermath of that, in Genesis 3.15, God pronounces a promise to Eve, and he says there's going to be a seed that comes from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so now we're looking at Eve's ascendants, right, and we're saying, okay, so from Eve's ascendants... There's going to come this sin crusher, right? This, this one to triumph over evil. And then ultimately God decides to wipe out humanity with the flood. But he preserves Noah, right? And reiterates the promise to Noah and his family, saying, be fruitful and multiply, spread over the earth. And it's a, it's a validation of the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15, right? He's not going to give up on humanity. And then so from Eve to Noah, then we move to Abraham, where God calls Abraham out, right, of paganism. Uh, of, of this polytheism, and, and he gives, us, gives him this promise, reveals himself as God and says, go out from this country, the land I will show you. And says, he says, through you, Abraham, right, I'm going to bless the world. And we see that, right, in the context that is a continuation of the promise that God made to Eve and preserved through Noah. And now we know that it's through Abraham's family. And then from Abraham's uh, descendants, we have the nation of Israel, and God sets Israel apart as a nation of priests, right, to, to mediate between God and the rest of the world. And so it, this nation is going to be sanctified for me. And we know, okay, well, it's, it's this nation, Israel, that is going to come, right, that original promise that God made to Eve and preserved through Noah and preserved through Abraham. And now it's for the nation of Israel. And under the Mosaic Covenant, there were actually regulations for the king of Israel, right? So God calls him to be a kingdom of priests, but in order to be a kingdom of priests, you kind of need a, a king. And so God pres uh, prescribes kingly regulations in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because we have a lot of things to get through. But essentially what he tells the people is, look, the king, he's not to acquire many horses. He's not to acquire many wives. And he's not to acquire much wealth and subjugate the people to those ends. And essentially what, what God is saying is he's supposed to reject the pursuit of power, the pursuit of sex, and the pursuit of money, right? The, the three common temptations of man, the, or, excuse me, the king of this kingdom of priests is supposed to be one that's opposed to those things. And what's he supposed to do? He's supposed to know the word of God, 
know the Torah, to meditate on it day and night, to, to have a copy with him, and to lead this kingdom of priests meant to display God's glory to the nations. He's, he's meant to lead them in the way of God. That's his role. But interestingly, Israel didn't have a king at that time. Right? They, they were ruled by judges for a time after they conquered the land with Joshua. And things are kind of bad at, at the end of the book of Judges. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. I know Phil on Sunday kind of covered that. And then eventually, God raises up Saul. And then eventually, God raises up David. And where Saul was, was not the model of, of a king after God's own heart, we see that David is. David is the one who actually comes to represent the ideal king of a nation of priests. Right? David is a man after God's own heart. and He's not perfect. Obviously, he sins grievously. But he follows the precepts of the Lord. He, he pursues the Lord. And it was, it's within that context, right? David, in his kingship of Israel, that the Davidic covenant is promised. And so where do we find that? We find that in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 4. So you guys can turn there, 2 Samuel 7. You also find it in, I think, 1 Chronicles chapter 17. But we're just going to focus on 2 Samuel 7. Uh, for, for our purposes here, all right? So this is what God speaks through the prophet Nathan to David in the Davidic covenant. It says this, starting in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Now, a little bit of context here, right? David has pretty much secured Israel uh, from most of her enemies, and he sets up his capital in Jerusalem, and he's chilling in his crib. And he's like, life is good. But then he has this thought. He's like, I live in this house, and, you know, the, 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 the glory of God is dwelling in a tent. Because at that point, it was still the tabernacle was what was being used. And so he decides, I want to build a house for the Lord. Or essentially what he's saying is, I want to build a temple. Which seems reasonable, right? Like, He's a man after God's own heart. He wants to build a dwelling place, quote-unquote, that's worthy of God's glory. And so he's like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And so Nathan at first is like, yeah, man, go for it. But then God gives him this vision, and that's why now Nathan is saying this to God. Or, excuse me, Nathan is saying this to David on behalf of God. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And he's referring to the tabernacle. And he's saying, look, my presence might have descended in glory upon the tabernacle, but don't think for a second that, you know, that somehow housed me or boxed me in. I'm transcendent. I graced you with my presence. Don't don't forget that. And then he goes on. He says, verse 7, In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Now, see what God is saying here. He's saying, look, my presence was, was, was graced to the people of Israel as they were wandering in the desert because me revealing myself to the people of Israel, that was an act of grace to them. And in the same way, you were not picked to be a shepherd of God's people because you somehow merited all these achievements. I picked you out of an act of sheer grace. You didn't do anything to earn your station. You're not doing anything to keep it, apart from the fact that I have been with you all this time. And so God is essentially reiterating that just like with all the covenants that God has made, it's been him taking the initiative, giving grace to the people. He goes on in verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now that's very key right there. Okay? I want you guys to kind of 
see that, and I want you to, to just remember that, kind of put that in the back of your mind. Because rest was a central theme of God's promises to Israel. It was promised in the Abrahamic and Mosaic Covenant, and now it's being reiterated here in the Davidic Covenant. Okay, we're going to actually return to that, so just keep that in your mind. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, this is awesome. Because essentially, God's like, you're going to build me a house? You're going to get some wood and chop it up and screw it together? No, 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 no. I'm going to do something for you that's actually extraordinarily greater than that. I'm going to give you a dynasty, a legacy that you could not give yourself. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Now this word is very important. Forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And then he says one more time, in case we didn't get the point, your throne shall be established forever. So essentially, with, that's the Davidic covenant. So in the Davidic covenant, there are three main promises, all right, that, that we need to see that God is giving to David. Essentially, he's saying, number one, David, I'm going to give you a dynasty. I'm going to give you descendants. There's, there's going to be kings that come from your body. And there's going to be a throne that I'm going to establish forever through your descendants. Number two, he says, one of your descendants will actually build me a house. Right? So there will be a temple that will be built. It won't be by you. But there will be a temple that will be established. And number three, there's going to be a kingdom that's going to come through your dynasty that is going to be eternal. It's going to have a throne that is forever. So there's a dynasty, there's a temple, and there's a kingdom. And these three things are important because in the Abrahamic and in the Mosaic Covenant, and now also here in the Davidic Covenant, you can actually see those things as being very closely tied together. It's almost like three parts of one whole. Because there were similar things that were promised to the people of God, namely Israel, within those things. Number one, that they would acquire the land, right? that they would have a secure place, And number two, in having the land that they would have rest from their enemies, right? The enemies of God. So within the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and being fleshed out in the Davidic covenant, there's going to be a land, right? That's given to the people of Israel. There's going to be rest from enemies within that land. And now God is saying within the Davidic covenant that he's going to actually bring this about through establishing David's dynasty through building a house, a temple, and then through establishing an eternal kingdom. Okay, now I know that's a lot of information, but let's just try to hold these things, right? So, David's descendant would be the one to ultimately secure God's promises of rest and land, securing his dynasty, building a, te- excuse me, building a temple, and establishing a kingdom. Now, in a sense, David's son Solomon actually accomplished these things. Right? So David's immediate son Solomon. Solomon is a descendant of David. So in a way, he represents David's dynasty. Not only that, but Solomon actually builds a temple, and the temple is glorious. Right? It's, it's, it's magnificent. And the glory of God actually does descend upon the temple. You could read about that, I think, in 1 Kings in parts of First Chronicles. And so he does build a temple, right? He is David's ascendant. He builds a temple. And not only that, but under Solomon's rule, uh, the kingdom of Israel is at its most glorious. You actually read in First Kings 4, 20 through 21, verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as a sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And so think about that, right? So Solomon has established a kingdom, has secured the land. He is David's descendant. He has built a temple. They have rest from their enemies. Life is good. 
everyone's having a grand old time. And it kind of seems like in this context, hey, Davidic covenant is fulfilled, right? Like Solomon did everything. Except, how long does it take for Solomon to mess everything up? And the answer is, it doesn't take very long. Because Solomon actually breaks all the stipulations that are in Deuteronomy 17. He literally marries 300 people and has 700 concubines. So he acquires many women. He builds a huge army and relies on it and makes a bunch of treaties with countries. So he relies on power. And he acquires massive amounts of wealth, which ultimately left him dissatisfied as he writes about Ecclesiastes. So the three things that Solomon was supposed to not do, he does. And then the one thing that Solomon was supposed to do, which was to know the Torah and actually read it and meditate on it, he fails to do because he runs after idolatry. And so what we see is, yes, Solomon did fulfill the Davidic covenant in a near sense, but there's not this eternal throne. There's not this eternal kingdom in the fallout of Solomon's actions. And as a matter of fact, the nation ends up splitting into north and south. And now it kind of seems like, well, what's going to happen now? Right? Things are horrible. Things actually become worse than they were before because both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom spiral out of control into this massive amount of idolatry and sin. And when you actually read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, a common phrase that repeats is, this king or that king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they did not walk as their father David did. And that phrase is very intentional because David was seen as the standard, if not David specifically, then the promise that God made to David was seen as the standard by which the kings were supposed to to keep and live. Yet what we see is that every king that follows David and Solomon fails and fails and fails until eventually there's exile and eventually there is destruction of the temple and then they rebuild the temple but the temple sucks and things are just a mess. And we're left waiting at the end of the Old Testament. When is God going to fulfill his promise? When is he actually going to bring this eternal kingdom? When is David's descendant actually going to sit upon the throne? When is it going to happen? And that's why Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 is the most fitting introduction to the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of of David, the son of Abraham. David is, or the promise that God made to David does get fulfilled, and Christ is the one who does it. He is the promised Davidic descendant, the Messiah King who's come to defeat sin, the one who's come to establish an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. And the rest of the New Testament is how Jesus actually secures that and, and, and establishes his kingdom and is continuing to do so, right, through his church. And so that's where we're at. Uh, that's, that's the Davidic covenant in a sense. Now, in order to emphasize these things, we have to look at a few different aspects. And it actually goes back to the promises, right, that God made through the Davidic covenant of descendants, of temple, of, of kingdom. And so what I, want you guys, what I want to point you guys to is that Jesus, number one, Jesus is the promised descendant, the son of David, Number two, Jesus is the greater temple. He's a sacred space between God and man where they can enjoy reconciliation and atonement and and be one. And number three, Jesus has established, is establishing, and will establish his kingdom. All right, so number one, Jesus is the promised ascendant. Number two, Jesus is the greater temple. Number three, Jesus has established, is establishing, and will establish his kingdom. All right, so those are kind of my, my three points. I gave him away there. But number one, Jesus is a promised descendant, the son of David. Let's look at this. Now, many of you guys know this, and I mention it literally every time I get to speak here, all right, but I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I know I sound like a broken record. Huge fan, right? I read them every year. I'm really excited for fall this year because I always read them during fall, and, you know, leaves start to change color, and you're like, yes, time to read Lord of the Rings, right? Sit down on my couch. And just open it, crack open the book, and it's great, right? But with me being such a fan of Lord of the Rings, one thing that I 
that's become a pet peeve of mine is that whenever there's a discrepancy between the movies and the books, it really, 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 really irks me. And it's starting to irk me more now that I've, I've, I've gotten more acquainted with the books. And one of the biggest discrepancies within Lord of the Rings is actually the way that they treat the character Aragorn. All right, now Aragorn is one of the, he's the last descendant of the kings of, of men. And one of the things that really frustrates me is that in the movies, the way that they treat Aragorn and his relation to this kingship is totally Americanized. And what I mean by that is Aragorn is like thinking about himself as a king or descendant of the king. And he's like, oh, I have the same weakness as like my father's. I don't know if I can do this, right? And then like Arwen's like speaking some like nice words to him and he's like, you're right. I can like totally assert myself and make this happen. I can do this. I can fulfill my destiny, right? And he's all like, he makes it basically all about himself. And I hate that because in the books, it's completely the opposite. In the books, Aragorn actually understands that his kingship was something that was promised and foretold in days past, and he's actually stepping into his destiny with resolve and with confidence, knowing the promises that were given. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, as a Christian, he intentionally made Aragorn's kingship in Lord of the Rings to reflect the idea of the people longing for a Davidic king, one who would come and fulfill the prophecies that were given by God through the prophets of a Messiah that would come to crush evil. Tolkien was actually drawing on that imagery, and that's why he writes it the way that he does in the books, in which the movies get wrong. And it's also why, in the book of Romans, which is the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel by Paul, many would argue, notice how he starts it off, though. You guys ever looked at the intro of Romans and really broke it down? Let me read this for you. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, right? So Paul starts it off with a normal salutation. He, he does that often in his letters, except for, well, he does it in Galatians, but it's much more short because he's really annoyed with the people, and so he just kind of jumps straight into it. But in Romans, he's giving this long salutation like he usually does. And so he's like, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart for the gospel. But notice what he says next, verse 2 which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's really interesting of all the things that Paul could have said about Jesus being foretold in the scriptures and by the prophets, what does he choose to to focus on? The fact that Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh. Why? Because that was the last piece of the puzzle. That was was a thing that really kind of lit the fuse, so to speak, in the people anticipating and hoping for specifically a Davidic descendant to be the Messiah. And so... Paul, in his introduction to the most comprehensive letter explaining the gospel, starts it off by saying, promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh. It's extremely significant. And yet a lot of times, many people just kind of glance over that. We actually see this theme of Davidic kingship, right? the Messiah being promised through the Davidic covenant, running especially through the book of Matthew. So one of the main themes of Matthew is how Jesus is king, how he is the king of the Jews, how he is the king that was promised of old. That's why it starts off with Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham. One thing that you find in the book of Matthew is that one of the main titles that Jesus is constantly referred to is the son of David, the son of David, the son of David, the son of David. So for instance, when Jesus heals the blind man in Matthew 9, 27 through 31, as Jesus is passing the blind man, what do they cry out? Of all the things that they could have cried out, what do they say? 
Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. They're not just saying that to say it, right? They're not just coming up with a random title. It's because they understand that Jesus is the son of David. Not only that, in Matthew 12, 22 through 23, when Jesus casts out demons, what do the people ask in light of seeing his power? What they say is, man, could this be the son of David? Could this be the one? And the people are asking that because they understood the promise. And then there's this whole scuffle where they say he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, which turns into a whole fiasco, which I won't get into. But Matthew 20, 29 through 34, again, Jesus heals more blind men. And what did they cry out? Have mercy on us, son of David. And when Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, right, which we're going to actually be celebrating soon with Easter, right, people are waving palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. But you know what the part is that many people leave out? Hosanna to the son of David. They actually drop that title in there as Jesus is entering into the city on a donkey, which was a, a picture of royalty. Right? Jesus as the king is entering into his capital, and they're crying out, Hosanna in the highest to the son of David. And so all throughout the book of Matthew, what we see is there's actually allusions again and again and again and again to the Old Testament, to the fact that Jesus was the Davidic descendant, the Messiah who would come through David's kingly line. Why are they constantly referring to Jesus this way? What are they expecting? What, are their, what is their hope? It's because the Davidic messianic king was the one whom the promise of peace and a secure place for the people of God would come through. He was the one, right? This, this Davidic Messiah was the one whom all the hopes of the people of God were set on. And that anticipation, right? That anticipation of when is this Davidic Messiah going to come was being realized in the person of Christ. The only problem with this is that a lot of the people misunderstood the rest that Jesus came to give, right? So the, the Messiah was supposed to come to give a rest for the people of God, a rest from their enemies. But the problem is that many people understood exactly what that rest was supposed to be. So why don't you, really quickly, let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. You have your Bibles. Matthew chapter 11. There's a really, really interesting conversation that's had here. I'm going to start in verse 2. It says this. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now, you have to understand, okay, at this point, John the Baptist is actually in prison. And he hears about, like, Jesus' ministry, that he's, he's doing all these things. And the text isn't explicit here, and I, I, don't, I don't want to say this for sure, okay? But there's a real possibility that the reason why John is saying, hey, Disciples, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? The reason why maybe he did that is because probably John was a little bit frustrated. He was frustrated because he's still suffering in prison, right? And, and, and this Messiah figure that's supposed to come, he's supposed to come and secure rest from the enemies of God. And yet, Israel is still under the subjection of Rome. Right? There hasn't been this freedom from the oppression of this foreign power. Israel is still kind of in bondage. And so John the Baptist probably in, probably in frustration was like, man, are you the one we're looking for or should we look for another? Like, when are you actually going to come through on your promise to rescue your people and give us rest? I, mean, I thought there was supposed to be deliverance. I, I thought that there was supposed to be uh, freedom. Right? And peace from our enemies. And yet we're still under Rome. We're still suffering. What's going on? And Jesus responds this way, verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in a king's houses. When then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And essentially what Jesus said is, look, John was the one who paved the way for me, but the thing that he misunderstood, the reason why the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than, than he is, is because he, John, even though he foretold Jesus is coming, didn't understand that the purpose of the kingdom of heaven wasn't to overthrow a physical authority, but rather it was to actually usher in true peace, true rest, a freedom from sin, a rest from the ultimate enemy, death. And Jesus says, look, the, the dead are raised, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. Do you not see how I am restoring all things? How I'm actually reversing the effects of sin and death? That is the peace and the rest that I came to give. And what's really interesting is that Jesus goes on to say in verses uh, 20 through 24, he pronounces all this judgment. He's like, woe to you, uh, Chosarin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, all, all these, these regions that he was ministering in. Specifically in Upper Galilee where he did the majority of his ministry. And by the way, a lot of these cities, I'm going off on a tangent here, but a lot of these cities were actually in walking distance of one another. They were like literally within like a 30-mile radius. There's this place in Israel you can go to that's like up... Uh, it's called Mount Arbel. And you literally look out, and the, the places that he's referring to, like Chosaran, Bethsaida, like literally you could point to them. They're like, oh, there's, there's Bethsaida, there's Chosaran, there's that. They're all within the same region. And Jesus is saying, woe to you. Woe to you, because I did these miracles, and I showed you who I was, and yet you didn't believe. You didn't repent. You didn't get it. You didn't get that I, I've come to bring deliverance and freedom and that I'm the king of this kingdom of heaven. Woe to you for not believing. And it's not as if they had an excuse because Jesus ministered there for a year and a half and they all could have just talked to each other and known. And yet they didn't repent. And then, interestingly, Jesus says in verse 25, he says, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, it's really interesting. Whenever people talk about that passage, usually they make it about anxiety and like stress and stuff. They're like, oh man, life is really stressful. But following Jesus, you know, it's anxiety-free. Which, by the way, is not even true. Like, you want to be a Christian, get ready to be stressed. All right? But there is a sense, yes, in which Jesus does, like, we can cast our anxieties upon him, right? That's first, or first Peter. And that he cares for us, that he comforts us, Second Corinthians 1. But the rest that Jesus is talking about here, you know, it's funny, like people talk about this passage, they never mention what he says beforehand about him calling down judgment on unrepentant people for not believing in his message. The rest that Jesus is talking about, right, that he's come to give rest, that his yoke is easy, he's talking about covenantal rest. It's not just a general sense of rest. He's saying, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will give you the rest that was promised in the scriptures. The rest from the enemies of God. The rest and security and a safe place for the people of God. That death will be defeated. That sin will be no more. I will give you that rest. But in order to have that rest, it is accessed by faith. 
those whom God chooses to reveal himself to. And the crazy thing about the kingdom of God is that God reveals it to those on the fringes, those who are low and, and on the outside. God reveals it to them. And there's judgment for people who did not believe, and yet there's rest for those who do. The ultimate promises of God are secured for them. The final rest that Jesus secures for his people is through the restored relationship with God. And we actually see this in Revelation 5, verses 1 through 5. That's why this passage says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with in and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. There's no one worthy to break the curse of sin. There's no one worthy to give final rest and redemption except Jesus, the descendant of David. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is the one to usher in the promises of God? And the answer is that it's Christ. So number one, Jesus is that promised descendant. Number two, Jesus is the greater temple. He is the sacred space between God and man where atonement and reconciliation can take place. So 2 Samuel 7, verse 13 says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so there's this idea that God is saying that one of your descendants is going to build a house, right? Like a, a temple. And one of the things that we have to understand is that the theology of the temple, really it's more like a theology of maybe the right terminology, uh, theology of sacred space, right, of a meeting place between God and man, is something that runs throughout the entirety of Scripture. And it's actually all inter- interconnected. So let me, let me flesh this out for you guys. Right, in the beginning, man and God dwelt in harmony in the Garden of Eden. Right, so the Garden of Eden was that space that was provided where God and man could be together. Man fell. Man was cast out of the garden. What direction? East. And then, what's interesting is that God gives this promise of the land, right? That, that, that there's going to be a land where there's going to be a nation, a people that are called by Yahweh's name, where they could actually be in right relationship with God. And it's funny because of all, like, even though they were moving from Egypt to Israel, one of the interesting things is the way that they enter into the promised land is across the Jordan, which is actually on the east side. Because just as the people were cast out of God's presence toward the east, you enter back in through the east. Right? And one more thing is in the tabernacle, the only entrance to the tabernacle, as well as the temple when it was built later, was on the east side. Because there's this idea that they're, this imagery that they're drawing on is just as you were cast out in one direction, now through reconciliation, you're entering in the direction that you were cast out. And so God is actually kind of building this theme throughout Scripture of sacred space, right? Where is the place where God and man can be reconciled and experience atonement and sin could be dealt with? What's interesting is that the, the first thing you had to do as soon as you entered into the tabernacle was offer a sacrifice in the temple. It's as if God is saying, like, this is the first thing that you have to deal with as you enter into my presence is sin, Right, which actually hinders our relationship. So all throughout the scriptures, there's, there's this theme of sacred space, right? In the garden, in the land, in the tabernacle, in the temple. But the ultimate meeting place between God and man, the ultimate place of atonement, and the ultimate place of reconciliation was in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is 
the greater temple because he is the place where ultimate redemption, ultimate atonement, ultimate reconciliation takes place. It's actually within Christ that we experience those things. And not, not only that, but Jesus himself claimed to be the greater temple. So in John chapter 2, verse 18 through 22, after Jesus ran, or not ransacked, but he's flipped over the tables all uh, in the temple and said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And he's, he's angry with the way that they've treated the father's house. And so the religious leaders say to him in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What gives you the authority to do this? And Jesus responds in verse 19. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said then, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, when he had conquered death, when he had actually made atonement for sin and showed that his payment was sufficient through his resurrection, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus validated the fact that he was the greater temple through his conquering of death. And that's why that the main way that scripture talks about salvation, and maybe there, I think there might be a deficit, deficiency in our language at times, is that salvation is to be in Christ. Even more so that, that more than the Christ is in us, the Bible refers to salvation as being in Christ far more often than Jesus in us. The fact that we are actually in him. We are included into the space where God and man can actually be reconciled. And therefore, you must be in him. You must be united to him. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, right? He who is without sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's funny, a lot of times people quote that passage, and yet they leave out the in him part, and that's actually the most important part of that verse. How is it that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ? Is that Jesus has included us in himself. What is the imagery of baptism? That actually you are in Christ, you identify with him, and that you, just as Christ died, you die with him. And just as Christ resurrected, because you are included within Jesus, you are also resurrected with him. And so the imagery of baptism and the way the language that is used of salvation is to be in Jesus because Jesus is the greater temple, the place where reconciliation between God and man can take place. But not only this, but in Christ, we as the church, we are the temple as well. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple and that God's spirit dwells within you. If you want to read one of the most beautiful displays or descriptions of just the people of God and God dwelling within their midst and, and us being at the, the household of the Lord, read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It speaks about how the place where he dwells is within the church. Right? That as God's spirit actually fills the church, that we as the church now just as the temple did in the Old Testament, we now display to the world what it looks like to be reconciled to God, to be in right relationship with him. And so whereas God was, was pointing forward to something within the tabernacle, within the temple, within all these things, we actually get to experience <laughs> the glorious reality of, as the church, that actually collectively as the church, we are the dwelling place of God's spirit. And we get to display to the world what it looks like to be in right relationship with God. As we love one another and care for one another. And as we proclaim the gospel to a world that needs to hear it. Not only that, but at the end of all things, the new heavens and earth are characterized as a place where God and man can be one. So right now, the church, in essence, is a colony. Right? It's, a, it's a micro picture of what is going to be true of the entire cosmos at the end of, of, of time. Because at the end of time, God's presence, God's holiness, 
God's glory will not just be present in a segment of the world, namely the church, but will actually fill the entire creation. And essentially, the new heavens and the new earth will be a place where all of existence is like the Holy of Holies in the temple. So I don't know if you guys have ever read Revelation 21. I remember reading Revelation 21 as a kid because I got bored with the sermon that, that the pastor was preaching. And so I would read Revelation 21, which talks about this giant cube-like city descending from heaven that's literally a thousand miles across. And it's, it's coming down like a Borg ship, like Star Wars, like a Borg. You guys don't even know what the Borg are. Never mind. But it's this giant cube-like like thing that's coming down out of heaven onto the earth. And this is like this really weird description. And it's talking about like these gates and like these jewels and all this stuff. And you're like, what the heck is going on? And I remember reading it as a kid and thinking, Christianity is weird. There's a giant cube city like coming out of heaven. But the reason why the New Jerusalem is described that way is because the, the, the materials that it mentions and the mentions that, that, that it mentions is actually reminiscent of the holy of holies in the temple. And essentially, what Revelation 21, 9 through 27, is saying is this new Jerusalem, this bride adorned for her husband coming out of the heavens onto the earth, a collision of heaven and earth, and the cosmic dimensions of, of this, 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 this new Jerusalem, is essentially communicating the entire cosmos, the entire creation is going to be filled with what was in the Holy of Holies. The presence of God will pervade everything. And yet you and I, as the church, right, with that as our hope, with that as our anticipation, we are actually a microsm, a, 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 a colony, so to speak, of the new creation to come. And yet our hope is that one day, just as God's presence filled the Holy of Holies and now as it fills the church, that it, at the end of days, God's presence and glory and power will actually fill the entire cosmos. And that's the new heavens and the new earth, the place where God and man can be one and dwell together and there will be no more tears or crying. That's our hope. So number one, Jesus is the greater descendant the Davidic king. Number two, Jesus is the holy of holies, or excuse me, Jesus is the greater temple, holy of holies. And number three, Jesus has established, is establishing, and will finally establish his kingdom. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 16, it says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, there's an aspect in the Davidic covenant where God is constantly saying to David, this is an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. It's going to last forever. It's going to be forever. It's going to be established for all time. And just in case you didn't get it, I'm going to say it twice. He actually says it three times in total. The throne and the kingdom promised to David were supposed to be for all time. And yet what we also find is that David, in his response to God's promise in the Davidic covenant, also recognizes that not only is this kingdom forever, it's also universal. It's not only eternal, but it's for all people. It's for all kingdoms. It's for all people groups. It's for the entire scope of mankind. Because David's response to this incredible promise in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 18, David says, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Or who am I that you would lavish these promises upon me? Then he says, And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. What we also find throughout the rest of Scripture with the new covenant that's promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel with things that God speaks through his, his people in the Psalms and in the prophets is that as this Davidic kingdom gets fleshed out, we see that it's a cosmic kingdom, that it's, it's a kingdom that's universal in scope.
Jesus is not just the king of Israel. He's the king of all kings. He's a king over an eternal kingdom of people from every tribe, every nation, every people group. And with the New Testament, what we find is that the citizenship of this kingdom is not based on status. It's not based on ethnicity. It's not based on social economics. It's based on faith. It's based on all who believe. One of the most profound stories that actually illustrates this is in the book of Matthew in chapter 8, starting in verse 5. It says, When he had entered Capernaum, Jesus, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now understand, the centurion is a Roman. Um, he's somebody that's not part of the Jewish people. Right? He's, he's heard about Jesus, but he's outside the ethnic people of God, people of Israel. Yet he comes to Jesus in faith and says, my, my, my son is sick. Jesus says, I'll go. Verse 8 says, but the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now catch this. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Now the fact that this, the omniscient son of God who knows all things can marvel at something is pretty extraordinary. But notice what he's marveling at. She goes on to describe. And said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus saying there? What he's saying is, he marvels at this man's faith and says, this man's faith shows what genuine faith genuine faith actually looks like. And what's crazy is that there's going to be people that come from east and west, from the ends of the earth, who are not of the people of Israel, and yet they place their faith in the Son of God in Christ, and they're going to recline at table with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet many people who were thought to be in but lacked faith will actually be out. And Jesus is essentially turning things on his head and he's saying, what is the citizenship of the kingdom of God actually based on? The citizenship of the kingdom of God is based on those who have faith. And the crazy thing is, is that God reveals himself, not just to the people of Israel, but to every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and is drawing people from all places and and all people groups because the kingdom of God is actually comprised of people from every nation and people group and tribe. Jesus understood that as the king of the kingdom of heaven, he is also the king of all people. People who are citizens of heaven by faith in this king. The most glorious description of this reality is in Revelation 7, 9 through 12. It says this, after this, this is John speaking, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. In Revelation 7, 9 through 12, we have a picture of the eternal kingdom, the eternal throne where the lamb sits enthroned and there are people from every tribe, there's people from every nation, there's people from every people group, there's people from all walks of life, from all times and epochs of history, worshiping God, waving palm branches, 
which is reminiscent of the imagery in Matthew and the triumphal entry, because Jesus is, in this passage, the glorified Messiah on the eternal throne that was promised. And that's why the church is multicultural and multi-ethnic and multinational and global. Because if the new creation is going to be characterized by those things, and like I said before, if the church is a colony of the new creation, then the church also displays that to the world. That the gospel is for all peoples. That the gospel is saving people from every culture, from every nation, from every people group. And by the way, that's not just uh, words. That's actually proven to be true, um, like, with data. That Christianity is actually the only religion on earth that is actually active in every different type of culture in, in people group and in region. And we can talk a little bit more about that if you want. You can grab me after and ask me about that. But it's pretty crazy, as. Me working in the Global Outreach Ministry Department, I've been learning some of, the, some of these things, you know, like working with Christians in Africa and in Asia and Latin America and stuff like that. And it's pretty crazy when you actually read the statistics, especially when compared to other religions, uh, the transcendence of Christianity and the way that it actually is within every culture. Um, whereas like other religions are usually confined to a specific culture or a specific people group. The church is described as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, you may, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. That's our description. That just as Israel is a royal priesthood, we also are priests. We're mediators between God and the world that stands opposed to him, and yet God through us is making his appeal, and we as his, as his ambassadors display the gospel, or proclaim the gospel and display a gospel explaining life to people who need to desperately know Christ. So in closing, as citizens of the kingdom of God, what is our primary responsibility? In light of the fact that Jesus rules and reigns over his kingdom, that you and I are citizens of that kingdom as a church, The answer is, maybe not what you think. You know, it's funny. There's a lot of people in our society. Like, if you were to ask somebody, right, would you like a society with perfect justice? I don't think anyone's going to be like, nah, I'm good. Right? And most people would say, yeah, like, I I want a society with, with, with justice. You were to say, do you want a society where, where, where people are treated with dignity and respect? No one's going to say, I mean, most people, but not all people, right? Like, especially in our day and age, we live in a society that highly prizes justice, right, and equality and all these things. And it's funny because in a lot of ways, you could actually say that the, the, a longing for the kingdom of God is, is actually all around us. <laughs> we live in a society that, that wants justice. They want equality. They want people to treat each other well. They, they want all these things. Yet what's interesting is that they want the kingdom of God, but they don't want the king. Your primary responsibility and privilege as a citizen of the kingdom of God is to proclaim the king. And as you proclaim the king, then to work for justice and all these things, but to do it because the king himself is empowering you and sending you and actually giving you the grace to do those things. Anybody can work for justice Anybody can, can, can talk about how they want equality or goodness in our society. It doesn't make you special. What sets you apart as the church, as citizens of the kingdom, is that you proclaim Christ crucified. 
and resurrected. The one who has all authority, the one who has all power, the one whom all glory and praise belongs to, and one day he will set all things right. And he will bring justice and equity. And as a matter of fact, that's our hope as Christians. The very hope that we Christians have is actually that which we proclaim. That one day, the king will return to claim what is rightfully his. That he will actually set all things right. And that's why Revelation twenty-two twelve through 17 says, Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Yet I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride, the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Let's pray.